There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 130. Today on the show, we're joined by avid big buck hunter and whitetail guide, Donnie Wilson. And we're discussing the 2016 rut, late season tactics, and much more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today in the show, we are going to be joined by Donnie Wilson, an avid whitetail hunter and hunting guide for Real McCoy Outdoors down in southern Ohio. And Donnie has demonstrated a level of hunting prowess that's pretty darn hard to match. But in short, this guy just knows how to hunt and kill big, mature free-ranging bucks like few others but he's a guy that you know he's not on a tv show he's not one of these big names but he just gets it done in fact he's killed two 200 inch bucks himself and has had success like this on both private land and public land on top of that because of donnie's role as a guide he gets a really unique perspective every year you know as he's able to hear from all the different hunters that he works with so kind of my thoughts for today were to dive into this wealth of information that Donnie has accumulated both personally and from what he's seen and heard and learned from all these other hunters he's worked with in regards to the 2016 rut that we has just kind of wrapped up for most of us. And then we'll also move on to this next phase of the season and talk about late season hunting. So that's kind of what the game plan is going to be for the rest of our conversation today with Donnie. But before that, of course, me and Dan, we got to catch up a little bit. So, uh, my friend, how are you doing? Do you ever have one of those days where you just kind of feel like drinking? I mean, I definitely, <laughs> <laughs> I definitely have those days where I feel like doing nothing. Right. And, and but that, not not just like doing nothing and a lot of drinking. <laughs> I mean, maybe not quite as much as you do, but I definitely know those days. <laughs> Dude, I don't have. I hardly drink at all anymore but there's days like today um and kind of it's probably something to snowballing into that uh because i had a terrible weekend i had a trail camera stolen from me 
<sighs> and just kind of a bad day at work yesterday and then kind of another stressful bad day today. And uh, it's just one of those days where it's just, you know what? I think I want to crack open an entire bottle of whiskey and drink it and then just kind of start over tomorrow. <laughs> I know I know about that reset button sometimes. For me, like my reset is like give me an evening on the couch and I, I just need a cold beer. For me, a cold yeah. That that's my relaxing drink, and then either just like decompress with one of like my my stupid binge watching TV shows or something, or I'm a geek. Yeah. I like to read too. So like last yeah. last night, I was I told the wife. Well, actually, the wife kind of wanted to do it too. It was like you know, let's have our own night, do our own things. So I just had a stack of like four books, and I went in my man cave, and I just sat there and read books all night, and I was yeah. about as happy as a clam. <laughs> Yeah, every once in a while I'll I'll take an hour to readjust or so, and I'll say, hey, I'm gonna go out into the garage, I'm gonna do something, and I it's not very specific, but then I just I have this old chair, I just sit in, no music, and just sit there and stare at stuff. I don't even do anything, it's just kind of to shut off, reboot, and be like, okay, okay, all right, I gotta be a dad and a husband again. Mm -hmm. I'm better, but I don't know. Let's talk about. Let's talk about uh, what you've been doing in the last couple weeks. I don't have as much exciting stuff to share as I wish I did, Dan. Yeah. Um, kind of, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, balancing, right, family and right. hunting and all these kinds of things. Right. And I'm fortunate, you know, that with my job, you know, this is my job. I'm able to hunt a lot more than a lot of people. I don't have children right now, so I've got fewer obligations than a lot of people. But, you know, at some point you've got to also – you know, still balance with the family I do have. So I've been spending some family time this last week and a half or so. I have not hunted since I haven't hunted in the last week. Um, yeah. I think the last time we talked, I can't remember if we talked about what had happened not or not. I don't think we did. Um, so after I got back from Ohio, real quick, I'll tell this really quick story. Right. After I got back from Ohio, I was home. I just spent the week at home with my wife, and then I went up to my northern Michigan deer camp with my dad, uncle, and my buddy for that weekend for two days. Had a great time up there. My dad killed a buck, which was awesome, um, which was really, really exciting. That was a highlight of my season, getting to uh, getting to be with him when that happened. I wasn't Sweet. with him, but um, I'd actually – it was – I mean, I'm going to tell two stories <laughs> um, really quickly. This is our northern Michigan deer camp. There are not a lot of deer. It is a tough place to hunt, but we go up there because that's where our tradition is. That's where I learned to hunt. That's where all these incredible memories have been. So this year, one of the things I, you know, we've been trying to do is try to improve things up there. So over the last year and a half, I've been working on getting our first food plot in. And so we got that food plot planted. I think we've talked a little bit about this. Um, well, things are paying off because we had a camera up there and we're seeing way more deer on trail camera than we ever have before, including several like really nice bucks. I'd shoot anywhere, um, let alone in northern Michigan, where my expectations would be much lower. Um, right. But so it's it's our first day of the weekend. Me and my dad get up there. He hunts in this ground blind like 150 yards away from the cabin. Um, you know, it's like this spot that you would never think that you see deer, but he right. does. Um, he does see deer over there every once in a while. And so I had brought my climbing stand. I walked over to where the food plot is. I hiked back there really, really quiet, took my time, was really silent, trying to set my tree stand up. I just gotten my climber up to where I wanted to be, and I was pulling my gun up when all of a sudden I hear ba-boom, and it's 345 in the afternoon. <laughs> I'm like, what in the world just happened? 
and it, there was no way it could have been anyone but my dad because it was so close. So I texted him like, was that you? And in my head, I was thinking one of two things. Either my dad just killed a buck up here, which has not happened in a very, 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 very long time, or he just accidentally shot himself. So <laughs> I'm sorry for laughing. It's not ba- that's not nice to laugh, but the way you presented that comment was funny. <laughs> well, yeah, and like, and I thought it was, and I honestly thought it was more likely that he shot himself. I was that concerned, oh and so I thought, oh, oh my god, if he does not text me back within 30 seconds, I have to get out of this tree and run over there and make sure he's right. okay. Um, fortunately, he texted me back immediately and said that he had. Um, so that was really exciting. And I got to help him track and recover his buck, and we just had a great time. Really cool father-son moment. So that was an awesome, awesome thing. It wasn't a big buck. It was a year and a half old. Um, but for him, that was a great deer. Um, I, I can't remember if we talked in the past, but my dad has some sight issues, so he has. Yep. A, it, it's a challenge for him. So um, being able to have an opportunity, any deer is a really special thing. And um, it was just one of the absolute coolest things. Being able to be with him, he killed a deer at my one of my properties in Michigan two years ago, and now here. Um, those are the first two deer he's killed since I've been around. Um, so just really, really, really special, um, special memory. So that was awesome. That is pretty cool. Yes. And luckily he didn't shoot himself. Yes. Thank goodness. <laughs> so flash forward two days, I get back from our cabin. I'm back home and I'm realizing, you know, I've been away from, from Kylie for a lot over the last like three weeks I need to stay home. I, I shouldn't go hunting right away. I should stick around here. So that first night back, it was really good and cold, great weather, but I was like, I need to stay home. So I'm staying home, and I just work that night, and I don't hunt at all. Um, I'm assuming that my wife will be home, you know, and we'll have dinner together and do all that kind of stuff. Well, with like an hour before dark, I find out that she's not going to be home until late that night, until after dark. So now I'm like, well, shoot, I, I should have hunted because right. she wouldn't have been home anyways. Um, and for a half second, I was like, is there any way I can sneak out to this property where Holyfield is and try to hunt the last little bit of time? But I was like, ah, it'd it'd be so tough to sneak back there. The the leaves are crunchy. You'd have, you'd spook anything trying to get out there. So instead I just went to a place where I could observe. And of course, with like 45 minutes of daylight left, Holyfield walks out into the middle of the field stands at probably about 120 yards from where my blind would be, then slowly circles all the way around, then goes into the food plot where he would have been probably, I don't know, I never could see exactly how close he got to my tree stand or the blind I have out there, the redneck, but he was probably all over it. If I had been hunting that night, I would have killed Holyfield and the story would have been done, but I was not hunting. Um, So he continues to evade me. The next day, though, I did go hunting. The next night I went out. I snuck in there, and I did not see him during shooting hours, but then shooting hours closed, it was getting dark, and I was packing up everything in the blind, getting ready to leave, and right before I was about to get out of the blind, I saw a deer out in the middle of the food plot, I pulled up my binoculars, and he's behind this one tree, It's he's behind this tree that my tree stand is in that I hunt with with a bow, um, right. and I can't see his head, I can just see a deer, so I keep on like trying to move my head to see on either side of the tree, can't tell, can't tell, finally... The deer turns and walks out of the food plot, and I can just see a big white frame. Um, I can't say with 100% certainty it was him because by this time it was so dark, I could just see, like, you know, a shape. Um, But it was probably him. So that's the last time I've been out. So it's been a week. Um, I did get trail camera pictures of him um, 
two days ago or three days ago on the wireless camera. So he's still, as of a couple days ago, he was still around. Um, so yeah, that that's kind of my latest. The story of Holyfield awesome. continues, and uh, I don't know, maybe in a week or so, I might try to get back out there after him, um, waiting for some cold weather and um, you know some brownie points. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Uh, brownie points are very important this time of year. Yes, yes. So, uh, But I wasn't even supposed to be telling all these stories. You're the one who has some stories to share, right? Oh, no, not really. Um, no, I don't think so. My my One of my trail cameras got stolen, and it really made me upset to the point where I drove up and down the road. I knocked on like five different houses, doors, talked with people. Uh, tried to get some information. It just blows my mind how, you know, this this road that I that this farm is on is not a main road. You have basically you're not going down there unless you live on it or you're you know up to no good. And is this your main your main farm or your northern yep. farm? No, nope, this is my main farm down south. And uh, someone two years in a row, same exact tree trail camera stolen. So shame on them the first time. Shame on me for not having it locked. Well, last time they cut through the cable lock. Really? Uh, yeah. So they had a pair of bolt cutters on them or something. Um, so, yeah, I got to figure out who's doing this and uh, like break their hands or something. I don't know. <laughs> well, you, or you can I'm, do the do the double camera trick. Right. But I have a feeling that I have a feeling that they listen to this podcast or my podcast or follow me on Facebook or something like that because why do you think that because I tagged out early this year right I shot my buck early so I left the farm right. and when I came back it was gone like three weeks later that camera was gone so um, it wasn't until shotgun season last year that it was stolen so I, I feel that they are familiar with everything that kind of happens in my world which really sucks because I, I want to post pictures of the deer that I hunt. I want to post, you know, provide content to the listeners, to the, the people who follow me on social media. And it just really makes it hard to do that when you got some guy who could potentially take advantage of that. The, the thing is, my stick and pick mount was still in the tree and I had a, tr a tree stand right there. You know, $500 worth of lone wolf sticks and uh, um, stand that they could have stolen but didn't. So that tells me they were in there, I don't know, do, like just didn't want to be caught in there. Man, I hope that I hope that's not the case that, uh, you know, it's that type of situation where it's someone who has this information because of the fact that you share so much yeah. through this and other things. And, you know, I worry about that kind of thing too. Um, and I've always, yeah. I've always told myself that, you know, to have faith in the decency of people. Right. Um, and you know, I think I know, I know, and I think that 99.9% .9 of people out there are good people and wouldn't do this kind of stuff. And then right. of that percentage of people, the people that follow Wired to Hunt and the Nine Finger Chronicles and what we're doing, they're even better people. Right. And I would hope that, you know, there would be, I think we've been, we've been very fortunate to build a relationship with our listeners and our readers mm -hmm. and viewers, um, in which I think they respect us. I hope yeah. they respect what we're trying to do. And, but I worry about the same things, you know, I've kind of had, you know, to be, um, to be frank or I don't know, 
forthcoming. Like I've had more and more people now around me, like mm-hmm. know about Wired to Hunt. I've had people that hunt near me come and like find out who I am and like right. find out where I hunt. And now I'm having these like encounters where people are like, oh hey, I listened to you on the podcast. I, I saw that deer, and it's right. kind of like whoa. Um, yeah, you know our like privacy. I've, you know, it's like it's our fault in that you know yeah. we share this stuff, so we have no one to blame for ourselves. And I just, I guess. I've always said, you know, I'm going to continue to share because I'm going to trust our listeners and our readers and everything to be respectful. And I I guess that's all we can do, right? We just have to trust and hope for decency. And I think, you know, for the most part, that's going to be rewarded. But uh, there's going to be those bad apples every once in a while. And, uh, man, I hope that if the person who did this to you is listening, I hope they feel really crappy right now. Well, and it's not what what really makes me mad about a situation like this isn't the money isn't the the actual gear or even the trail camera or the trail camera pictures that's stolen right to me it's time time is the is the only commodity that you cannot you can't get it back so all the time and energy that i put into work working a job to buy the batteries to buy the gear to buy you know to go out there set it up and the time it soaks getting pictures and the time it takes for me to drive back to check that trail camera and the gas money and all that stuff the time it takes that you can't get back is what really pisses me off the most and uh you know and like like i said you know, if, if that person is listening to this podcast, it's okay. I mean, make, you make a mistake. If it's, if you, if you stole my camera the first time and, uh, you know, maybe this was an accident or it's two different people and these were accidents, just put it back. That's all I'm asking. Uh, even, you know, I, I, I'd like the trail camera pictures, but just delete yourself off the pictures and, uh, and, and just put it back. Now, if this, uh, if this person is a habitual and, you know, steals trail cameras, uh, like what he's done two years in a row, this person's done two years in a row, you're a rat bastard. And I, (laughs) and I, and if I do find out who you are and I'm going to try my damnedest to do it, I'm going to, you know, call the sheriff. I'm going to call, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to get authorities involved and, then I will use my quote-unquote presence online to post your name all over and let people know that you are a thief and maybe your reputation will be ruined as well. So well, there's that. There's that. <laughs> this this yeah, podcast might, took might a turn <laughs> yeah, towards the negative. <laughs> well, I can certainly understand your frustration, and uh, I hope this situation is resolved. And hopefully it's the last one that happens to you. Amen. Let's uh let's talk about big bucks. Yeah, let's talk about deer. We've got Don Donnie Wilson, who uh, is one of those guys that maybe not a lot of people know about, but probably should, because he is killing really great deer consistently. And uh, I think we're gonna we're gonna have some interesting things to learn from him. So I'm excited about this conversation, Dan. So you ready for us to give this uh, give this guy a call? Let's do it. All right, well, let's first take a break to thank our partners at Sitka Gear, and then we'll call Donnie. All right, so as always, we want to give a big thanks to Sitka Gear for their long-running support of the Wired Hunt podcast. And today, 
Rather than a Sitka story, I wanted to give you a quick update on Sitka's Diverge Photo Contest, which has been going on for the past couple months this fall, and now is coming to a close. Of, I think, somewhere around 10,000 different photo submissions, 30 photo finalists have been selected. And now the final winners will be selected by the voting public. That's you and me. So, right now, you can head over to sitkagear.com diverge to take a look at some of the incredible photography that has made it to this final stage. And then place your votes. So voting is open from now through December 15th. So head on over to sitkagear.com diverge to check those out and to place your vote. Now secondly, we also want to thank our partners at Huntera Maps who are currently running a holiday promotion in which they're offering 20% off all of their mapping products. That includes their handy waterproof and tearproof field maps, and their impressive poster and magna maps that all feature beautiful aerial imagery, topographic lines, 3D shading showing terrain features, and all the different custom work you might want added. Now this offers only running through December 4th, so time is running out. That said, be sure to uh, subtly let anyone know that might be buying for you this Christmas to get their map ordered ASAP for you. And if you've got a fellow hunter on your Christmas list, this is a great option for that too. So visit Huntera.com by December 4th. That's Huntera, H-U-N-T-E-R-R-A.com by December 4th and get 20% off. Now let's get back to the show and get Donnie Wilson on the phone. All right, now with us on the line is Donnie Wilson. Welcome to the show, Donnie. Hey, Mark, how are you? I'm doing well. Me and Dan, uh, we just wrapped up complaining about issues with trail camera thieves, so uh, we're hoping that you can put us back on a positive road here in our conversation. Yeah, I hear that. Trail camera thieves are no fun. No, no, they're not. It's uh, an unfortunate reality of um, of our world today, I guess, but... Um, but Donnie, I I got to know you through the Sitka Whitetail Ambassador Program. We're both ambassadors for Sitka, um, and I, you know, have started seeing some of the pictures you've been posting. And we got to talk, I don't know, a few months ago for one of our Sitka stories, and I heard about some of your hunts. Um, and the more I, I hear, the more I've been impressed with how you've been able to kill mature bucks, how consistently you've been able to do it, and then also kind of the operation that you work with there down in southern Ohio as a guide. This seems like you've got a lot of interesting irons in the fire kind of when it comes to big mature deer hunting. So I guess before we dive into the hows and the whats of what you do, I'm kind of curious about, you know, how you got to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about your background as a hunter? Well, obviously, you know, my dad was a huge influence on me hunting, um, he was a deer hunter, but he was kind of a gun hunter. He didn't do much bow hunting. Um, so we always started out, I started rabbit, squirrel, that type of hunting. And, uh, I knew my dad went deer hunting, but you know, he didn't really take me deer hunting. I think it was his time to get away. So, you know, I, I started deer hunting kind of on my own, um, had pretty good luck with a gun. And then I just decided that I was going to start bow hunting and, uh, shot my first doe the first day that I went bow hunting and the rest is history. I mean, I was hooked that day. Like, so after that, you know, I, I started shooting anything that I could get a tag for with a bow. Um, and then it kind of transitioned to, you know, after five or six years, I transitioned to wanting to kill big mature deer. You know, and that 
that's kind of where I'm stuck at now. I've, I've been bow hunting probably 20 years, something like that, 22 years. Um, and now I'm strictly a mature whitetail hunter. Um, score means something to me, obviously, but age is probably more important to me. Yeah. And, and you now not only hunt yourself, but you're also operating as a, as, as a guide as well, right? Can you tell us a little bit about what you do there? Yeah, I, 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 I'm the head guide for uh, Real McCoy Outdoors down in Adams County, Ohio. Um, I got started about 12, 13 years ago. I had a different outfitter, Buckeye Outfitters, asked me if I wanted to guide for them. And I'd never done it before. Um, but I thought it'd be interesting to do. And, you know, you'd think that you're going to get out in the woods and have all, the kind of, all kinds of time to hunt and spend all your time in the woods. But as a guide, you don't get to hunt much. So it's it's not what it's all cracked up to be being a uh, whitetail guide if you like to hunt. Um, but I did that, and then I took a couple years off because I wasn't getting to hunt. I wasn't enjoying the guiding thing. And then I, uh, Real McCoy Outdoors made me an offer, said that I would get to hunt. And so I started working for them about five years ago. And uh, we've, we've done pretty good. We've, we've done a lot better each year. Things are definitely heading in the right direction down there. So what does what does your what does that job entail? I mean, I think there's like assumptions from the outside of what the life of a guide would be in a whitetail outfitting type business, but for you, you know, during the season when there are hunters in camp, what are you actually doing throughout the day? You know, most of the work is done before the season starts. You know, we we do a ton of leg work, hanging stands, trail cameras, food plots. You know, you do all that stuff before hunters come into camp. So when hunters come into camp, you kind of sit down with the hunters, go over to, go over everything with them, um, how the week's going to go, what we're trying to accomplish, what they're trying to accomplish, um, what kind of weather we're going to have, you know, throughout the week. Um, I'm, I'm a big believer in the weather. I think it means more than more than anything. Um, so we sit down, we talk about everything during the week, and then um, we kind of decide where guys are going based on their abilities. You know, a lot of, a lot of guys can't get up in a 25-foot lock-on tree stand. They need ladder stands. So we have to go over all that and, and you know, what their expectations are. What, you know, there's a, there's a ton of stuff that we go through with the guys when they come into camp. And then once the hunt starts, you know, there's not a lot going on as far as what I'm doing. So I can hunt. That, that's, that's why I do it for the McCoys is, you know, I, I get to hunt. Once I get these guys taken care of and, and situated, then, then I get to, get to do some hunting. Nice. That is, that is a nice situation. Um, now, one of my buddies, well, several of, of our uh, mutual friends – we're down hunting with you in late October, but uh, I know, you know, for a lot of our listeners, actually, they probably recognize Dennis Zuck, who did a lot with us over the past year on the podcast for the Sick Ad Spots. He was down there, and he killed a great buck with you guys, and then my other friend, Matt McCormick, missed a great buck. Uh, what, what happened on that hunt? Well, Dennis killed, Dennis killed within the first hour and a half. 
So that worked out pretty good for Dennis. And then Matt, well, Matt, Matt had never really done much um, whitetail hunting from a tree stand. So when I was talking to Matt about coming to hunt Ohio, I mean, it's kind of ironic, but I said to Matt, you know, the thing that I want to do most, Matt, is put you on a whitetail big enough that's going to make you miss. <laughs> and sure as heck, the guy missed. It's probably 160, 170-inch deer. It was, it was a big deer. I know he's he's still losing sleep over that one, too. I'm sure he is. He's He's hooked. You know, he came into camp. He sat all day that day and uh, came in that night. He missed that morning. And he came in that night. His eyes were still glowing. You know, he was on fire. It was it was pretty awesome to see somebody that was that excited after they spent 10 hours in a tree stand. That's the truth. That's the truth. Well, that's that's what makes deer hunting so uh, so special is that those moments, even the, the low points, they stick with you sometimes in, sometimes in a pretty cool way. That seemed like... An encounter that uh, he'll never forget, just being around a deer like that. It's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Matt's not going to forget that one anytime soon, that's for sure. Yeah. Hey, Donnie, I got a question for you in yes, regards sir. to, you know, guiding for an outfitter or, or whatever. How often do people get mad or, or maybe blame you if the hunting's not good or if they're in the wrong tree stand or, you know, Hey, this guy killed at camp and I haven't seen crap. What's the problem? It happens way too much. You know, like we, we, we go through it. I won't say on a weekly basis, but it's, it's probably every other week we get one guy in camp that's, you know, has issues and, you know, we have the deer, the mature deer there, but it's hunting. You're not going to go out and shoot 150-inch deer every time you go out. Right. If you did, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be as fun. It wouldn't mean as much to you if you went out there and shot a big deer every time you went out. So it happens a lot, and you, you, you kind of deal with it, and you, you kind of let it go in one ear and out the other. You know, you have to. Right. It, a follow-up question, who are the kind of people that use an outfitter. I, I feel that if I paid money to an outfitter, I am therefore expecting more encounters with better quality deer. Is that, is that kind of a myth or is that more accurate? I mean, that's, that's what everybody's expecting. Right. You know, but we do all that we can. The, I mean, the most important thing to me in the world when I'm guiding is to put you on a deer, you know, yeah. and some guys think that, you know, we're holding back or, you know, we're, we're doing other stuff so that their opportunities are less. But my, my most important thing is to put you on a deer. I'm, I'm not going to save a stand. I may save a stand for a day or so if the weather's going to be better in a couple days for a particular spot, I may save a stand, but, you know, I'm I'm trying to put you on deer. That's for sure. Do you ever have? Do you ever approach your hunting strategy for areas that are going to be for the guided hunters differently than you would approach strategy for yourself? You know, if you were hunting a property completely just to you, 
versus you were setting up a property or planning hunts and a plan for a property with other guys. How do those two things differ? Do you have to, I don't I, as I'm like kind of thinking through this, I'm wondering if you have to start making changes based on assumptions of different skill levels or different abilities or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, we have to set some stands that are easier to get into. You know, just it just has to happen. Some of, some of the places that I hunt, you know, there's 25% of the guys are going to do some of the things that I would do um, typically to to get into a place. You know, some of the guys don't want to hide. Some guys don't want to be in a 25-foot stand. You know, so we have to we have to set up some of the properties knowing that we're going to have some guys that their abilities aren't the same as, you know, mine or one of the other guys that um, that I hunt with, you know. So we definitely set up properties with that in mind for sure. And do you, are most of your guided hunts happening during the rut or is it all season? No, we, we concentrate on the rut. I mean, we, we hunt, everybody's idea of the rut is two weeks and my idea of the rut is four weeks. And that's, you know, last week, October, first three weeks in November, we hunt those four weeks and then we do a little bit of gun hunting and then we hunt the late muzzleloader season. And late muzzleloader in Ohio is uh, the second week of January. Yeah. So we're really only hunting about six weeks out of the year. Yeah. So most of that time period now is past, and you've been able to hunt, you've been able to see you know, or hear about hunts from all these other guys that have been hunting with you. What would you say about the 2016 rut? You know, what what have you heard? What have you seen from a quality standpoint? I don't know. What? How would you view this past rut that just happened? I, I from what I've seen, you know, any any one time, we're talking to myself and the two brothers that run the outfitting company. We're talking to on a daily basis, thirty to fifty different guys, whether it be phone calls or text messages. So we get a pretty good idea of what's going on in the Whitetail Woods. You know, like every day we see what's going on. 2016 textbook came in. We saw seeking. We saw chasing. We saw the rut. We, we got some lockdown. Um, here recently we've seen some of these bigger bucks that you would not see during lockdown. They've come off of does and they're, you know, walking through the fields in the middle of the day. So, I think 2016 was pretty spot on as far as textbook textbook rut goes. What about timing? What what kind of time? Like what as far as when you saw that seeking and chasing starting? When did you see lockdown? Did, did you is that like was it defined enough that you could say well that first week was really X, the second week was really Y, anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I think it was a late rut. I think there's still some deer out there that are rutting. So, you know, last week, October, I think we were starting to see some big deer get up, moving around, seeking. First week of November, we had a ton of chasing going on. Second week of November, I, I think there was some lockdown going on. The third week, you know, we still had some lockdown, but the deer were coming off does and, and looking for other does. Okay. It, was, it was pretty pretty textbook. What about warm weather? Because you guys had some warm weather down there in that first week or so. Did that impact things at all? It did. It you know it impacted um, sightings from from our from our hunters for sure. But 
you know, we, we just kind of played that. You know, we knew that that was going on. Those deer are still doing doing their thing, but they're just doing it at night, you know, when it's cool. But we had a cold front come through that week that it was uh, pretty warm. We had a cold front come through Wednesday night, Thursday morning. And after that, we put some guys in some spots. They were We were kind of waiting for that weather to come through. And uh, we had a guy kill a 150-inch A-point. Nice. It worked out. Yeah. I mean, w- when you get those warm spells, I, I know the guys are on a five-day hunt, you know, and they're wanting to hunt every minute. But a lot of times there's times to just sleep in, you know, or not go out at all if you only have one or two places to hunt, if you have one or two best tree stands that you like to hunt. I think it's best to just stay out of there until it's ripe and then go in and uh i think i think people have a lot better luck that way yeah how do how do you determine this is back to an outfitting question let's say there's five guys in camp how do you determine who goes where because if let's say me and mark were sharing a camp together we both both want to be in the best possible stand after the biggest possible most mature buck How, how do you delegate who goes where well, that's a tough one. I mean, obviously, we got some issues with who can hunt where. So everybody being equal, I don't think that we pick and choose as far as we, – we'll pick four tree stands and we'll just tell guys to go. We don't – we try not to play favorites. Um, but there's obviously – if there's a guy that can't get in a 25-foot lock on, he's going to get to a ladder stand. Um, there's some of that goes on as far as, you know, who we're going to put on the biggest buck. I don't think we play favorites. I think we pick our stands and we kind of leave it up to our hunters a little bit. You know, we'll say, these are the three stands. You guys can decide where you want to go. We don't, we don't show people pictures of, Hey, this stand, we're seeing this buck. You know, we try not to do that. We'll just pick the stands that we want our hunters to go to and then kind of let the guys decide where they're going to go. Let them duke it out. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, that, that takes the responsibility off of us. And, you know, some, some of the walks are longer. Some of the stands we want you to, if you're going to go in and you're going to take that hike, we want you to stay there all day because of going in and going out, you're making more disturbance than just staying in there all day. So – that that plays part in you know where these guys are going and and who wants to who wants to go where you know yeah that makes sense so speaking of you know people going to different spots and everything like that what were the spots or the tactic or whatever that worked for you guys or your clients this year was there you know a couple examples you can share with us where people had successful hunts in you know a certain type of situation that you could describe for us yeah, I would I would say the main thing this year was just hunting pressure. Period. I mean, the one property we have one property is 900 acres, um, and we hunt uh, quite a few guys there, 15 to 18 guys throughout the year. We hunt there, but four deer were killed on that property, and one was missed. And out of all of those deer. It was the first time in the stand. So that being said, there were some of the places that we'd hold, you know, till later in the week or till next week 
not not purposely holding it back, but knowing that you know the weather was going to change, or you know we we got more hunters coming in next week. You know we we got to save some spots for those guys, yada yada. But the deer that were killed, they were killed the first sit in the tree stand. <laughs> yeah, that and seems was, to be such a consistent thing. Those those first couple sits are always almost the best. Yeah, it was. We, I mean, we had a few situations that were pretty eye-opening as far as pressure goes this year. I mean, the, I hate to keep bringing up Matt's miss, but <laughs> Matt Matt went to a stand that's a couple miles from the lodge, and, and we don't run four-wheelers in the mornings. We don't do the ATV thing. We, if you're going to hunt in the mornings, you're going to walk to the stand. We, we don't we don't start any vehicles, just trying to keep the noise down. Um, so, you know, Matt hiked into this one stand. It was two miles. We, we hadn't hunted it at all, but there's an adjacent outfitter that runs around on ATVs and side-by-sides, taking hunters in every morning, picking them up, dropping them back off. They do that all the time. Well, we put Matt in the stand based on their pressure. So we went to an area that's close to where they hunt, but we hadn't hunted, but their pressure um, ultimately put the deer in Matt's lap. So just a just an example is, so Matt goes in there, he hikes in there, he sees this deer, he shoots at it, he doesn't connect with the deer. The deer spooks and runs off. The next week, that outfitter killed that deer on their property. Hmm. So we used their pressure to get Matt on the deer, and then when Matt had his issue the deer spooked, went back on their property, they killed it the next week. Wow. It's just it was just eye opening the how much the pressure played a part in it. Yeah. Now down in that part of the state it's pretty hilly terrain, is that correct? It's very hilly. Okay. So what kind of like I mean, are you hunting a lot of like terrain funnels? Like is this a lot of like ridge hunting or finding saddles and things like that? What type of like rut spot do you guys really focus on down there yeah it's definitely hilly terrain we definitely hunt saddles um i like to hunt the tops of uh like draws like where the deer are going to walk around a steep draw we definitely use the terrain down in there um the property that we're hunting most of the time it has about 100 acres of a field but if we're going into the woods we're definitely hunting in a saddle or top of a draw some kind of terrain features is definitely what we're hunting. Okay. Okay. Now, what about your rut? How did you do? I did pretty well. I, I mean, I I actually shot two deer this year. Um, the first one I didn't find, and a couple of days later, we he was back uh, at the feeder, so he's okay, which was good. But I actually had two opportunities to shoot. So I hunted five this year five times in a tree stand and the first time i hunted uh the property that i hunt it's i actually get it to hunt that's kind of partial payment for the uh, guiding that i do the first time i sat in the tree stand there i shot and then i hunted a couple more times and then um i hunted another property first time in that stand i shot killed wow so i had a, i had a really good year 
but I didn't get to hunt that much. I only hunted five sets. I like to hunt more than that, but yeah, you know, can, can I'll you, take it. Yeah, I guess so. If it's that percentage of uh, of shot opportunities, two out of five sets, that's pretty good. Can, <laughs> yeah, that was good. Yeah. Can, can you describe those two hunts and the situations? I'm always curious, you know, when all the things come together, I always want to know, okay, what was the situation that led to that shot? Can you describe those two scenarios, you know, what, you know, what that setup was like, why you chose to be there, et cetera? Yeah, both spots I, I, ch- I chose because of, you know, first time in, obviously. Um, both places are big woods type country it's it's big timber um but i keep feeders in there and i keep them going for a couple months before the season um with corn just to concentrate does and um both situations the first one you know 150 some inch six-year-old came in he actually came to the feeder and um i always hunt probably 60 70 yards away from the feeders i don't hunt right over the feeders i just like to try and catch him coming in but he came in and i watched him for 10 minutes and then some does came in from behind me and milled up to the feeder and uh once he saw the does it was still pretty early so he wasn't really pushing them around as much as he was just kind of curious and you know he came down pushed the does around a little bit came over to me um made a rub I shot him. I shot him at 18 yards. It was a super steep angle. I was probably 25 foot up in a tree, and he was downhill another 15 feet. And uh, I shot, and I shot low. You know, typically these bucks will, will drop down when you shoot, so I hit him pretty low, and he didn't drop. And uh, shot him right in the armpit. And uh, Dennis and I looked for him the next day, and uh, we both decided that. He probably wasn't dead. We tracked four or 500 yards, and then the blood stopped. There wasn't much blood. And, you know, five or six days later, he was back at the feeder. So that one went pretty well. Um, pretty much the same situation on the second one. Deer came in to, um, to the feeder, bumped some does around. Um, it was a deer that I was kind of on the fence whether or not I was going to shoot. I had trail cam pictures of him. So I got a little bit of video of him before I shot him with my cell phone. And then as I looked over, you know, looked at him over and over, I decided that he was probably going to be good enough. So I shot him at 30 yards, another steep angle. And I actually hit that deer in about the same exact place as I hit the first deer. But because of the less, less of an angle, he went 50 yards and piled up. That's what you want to see. At the beginning of the podcast, you talked a little bit about shooting, um, you know, mature maturity is the first reason why you, why you kill a deer. And then maybe, uh, uh antler size is kind of an afterthought, but you know, you, you probably wouldn't shoot a 120 class five-year-old if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, how do you, how did you know, I mean, are you running trail cameras on these, on this property all year long in order to know what exactly is happening on this have you did you go into this property before you hunted it to check trail cameras or what did you just leave it alone and then go in there the first hunt and first couple hunts and have success um i run trail cameras 
probably from July. I start trail cameras in July on these feeders. I don't really run trail cameras um, anywhere else on the properties, just kind of on the feeders. And that way I kind of get an idea of what's on the property. I don't necessarily use the trail cameras for strategy as much as just seeing the age class of the deer. I had both deer on trail camera that I shot. So I knew that they were, you know, the the one deer that I shot was definitely a six-year-old. Um, we got, a, I got a friend that's got hunts in the Jason property. He's had the deer on camera for three years. I've had it on camera for a couple of years. So I knew what that deer was. Um, the second deer that I shot, I didn't have him last year on trail camera, but I had him this year and I had quite a bit of, quite a few pictures of him. So I was, assuming that he was four or five years old. So he was he was right on the fence for me whether I wanted to shoot him or not. Um but yeah, I you know, decided to shoot obviously. But yeah, I, I try to use the trail cameras just to decide on age, just to get that age uh structure going. Now speaking of mature bucks, one of the common knocks that I hear on using a feeder or bait or something like that is that, yeah, it's great for bringing in deer, you know, does and young bucks, but it's hard to kill a mature buck around that or near that. Um, so how come you were able to be successful with that? Was it, a, was it just a pressure thing? It's a pressure thing. That, the one thing that I, I try to do is if I'm going in there to check my trail camera, I'm taking in some kind of reward for my scent being in there, whether it's I'm filling up the trail camera or, I mean, filling up the uh, feeder or I'm going to put out some kind of mineral or something like that right there at that camera. If I go in there, I'm leaving some kind of reward for my scent being in there. And then once I get, you know, a deer on the camera that I know that I would shoot, I just stay out of there until, until the weather's right. Hmm. And what's the weather so that you key in on? I love to hunt right after, right after a cold front. Like when that, when the, pressure's rising i think the, the couple days after a, a good cold front i don't think you can beat it yeah and i wish we had i feel like this year we had a lot of those like little mini cold at least for me here in southern michigan we had a lot of these little mini cold fronts that came through like almost every weekend we get one of those but then there was a long stretch of like monotony in late october through early november um, where I was just dying for one of those big fronts to hit, and we didn't get it till till I don't know if it was like the eighth of November or somewhere around there. But uh, that really can make or break the action a lot of times. Uh, absolutely, I, I'm a firm believer in it for sure. Yeah. I mean, even the little cold fronts, just the little ones. If we get a little bit of rain, just just enough, you know, just to change that pressure a little bit, I think it makes a huge difference. I mean, the deer are going to move. You know, they got to eat. Um, and then you just save the, the, the days, your best spots for when you get a little bit of change. Yeah. Now, all of these hunts we've been talking about, both you and your, your hunters, have been private land, right? Um, but I know you've also done a good bit of public land hunting um, and have had success too. Um, right, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you killed a 200-inch buck on public land. Isn't that right? I did, yeah. Can can you tell us about how you did that? It, it was just you know maps, you know that I killed that one back in 2012. Um, 
that was just when I started using maps on the cell phone, but I've always had, you know, 50 or 60 topo maps that I would find the places on public land that I figured nobody else would go to. And I would just hike in and hunt, you know, a mile, two miles back in the woods and kind of use other people's pressure. I mean, there's, there's one thing that I've, I've said a couple of times this year, and I've been saying it for years, but it's kind of like going in the back door. Like if, if you can hike in two miles and hunt in the mornings over a cornfield that's on um, public or private land, but you're hunting state land, so you know that where the deer are feeding, but you can hike in two miles and come in the back door to catch them coming back into state land where most people wouldn't do that. So, and then, you know, I use the, uh, I don't know the deer there. I didn't know that deer was there, but I'm hunting a place that's unpressured and I'm hunting the, uh, terrain of the terrain of the land. And in what terrain or what, what on the maps were you specifically looking for? I guess, I mean, I understand that you were looking for spots to get away from, you know, far away from other access points, but were you, I mean, when you were looking in the situation, was it like, okay, this ridge looks like there might be something bedded here, or this spot looks like a spot they travel through. I'm always curious because, at least for me, reading maps is always like that really fascinating part of the. You can almost predict exactly where deer will go based on these maps. Sometimes, um, I'm curious Absolutely. if you went, if you go to that detail, or if you're just trying to get away from people. No, I definitely. That's that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a saddle. I love to hunt a place where there's a big long ridge. And there's a saddle, and the saddle usually is there because there's two draws on each side of that ridge that meet in that saddle. So you hunt either side of that ridge, and you hunt the head of that draw in that saddle. So you got kind of like two terrain features working together there, and that's how I hunted state land for years. I just hunt those saddles and heads of big, deep draws. So... Tell us about that. Tell us about that deer coming in. What were you thinking when you had hiked two miles back or whatever, and then that thing shows up? So that deer, Mark, I hiked in. I got in there just a little late. It was already starting to crack daylight, and uh, I have my climber. I climb up in a tree. I get everything situated. I pull out my phone to text my wife to tell her that I'm safe in the tree, and before I could get done texting. I look up, and he was at probably 40 or 50 yards. By the time I got locked on my string, he's at 20 yards. I stopped him and shot him. I mean, it happened. I was in my stand <laughs> for literally 15, 20 minutes. That's amazing. I mean, it was, yeah, and when I shot the deer, it, it's a good deer. Obviously, it scores well. Um, but when I shot the deer, I thought I was looking at a 160, 165-inch 10-point which is a great deer, but, you know, it's not a 200-inch deer. Um, but when I got down, went over to look at him, he had all these uh, sticker points around his bases. So there was there was two points that came off the back that were six inches long, and then, you know, he had a total of 24 points, 34 inches of, of non-typical points. So I sh- thought I was shooting a 165-inch deer, and I shot a 204-inch deer. Jeez. Wow, that yeah. would be a nice Lucky. surprise to walk up on. It was pretty nice, yeah. I, I called my dad. The story goes, I called my dad 
tell my dad I shot another big one, and he says, you know, how many points is he? And I said, I don't know. I haven't counted him yet, so I start counting. I get to 12, and my dad says, wow, great. You know, great deer, 12 point. And I said, dad, that's on one side. <laughs> Jeez. So, yeah, it was, it, was pretty, it was a pretty neat day. And, you know, I was, I was in there by myself and had a climbing tree stand, bow, and backpack, and now i got a 200-inch deer laying on the ground that I have to drag out by myself. <laughs> so that's the down part of hiking in there two miles. Mm-hmm. Is once you shoot them, you gotta get them out. Yeah. Did you have any trick for getting them out without uh, breaking your back? No. No, I pretty much broke my back. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, I tied him, used my uh, lanyard for my safety harness, tied him to my belt, and started hiking. Wow. Well, uh, it took sh- me four hours to get him out. Yikes! I'm sure it was worth yeah. it, though, right? It was worth every drop of sweat. <laughs> now, speaking of 200-inch bucks, that wasn't your first one, right? Yeah, I killed a, I killed a nice typical, real nice typical back in 2007. That's, that's the one I'm proud of. But the one you know, that we just talked about, that was on state land, which I'm proud of that. But like I said, he's a 165-inch deer pretty much. The, uh, the typical I killed, he grosses out exactly the same as the non-typical they both they both gross 204 and 48 which is crazy um one's 14 points one's 24 points but the typical to look at them on the wall i mean it's it's frame is 191 inch frame i mean he's gigantic jeez so what, what was the story on that one how'd that happen that was uh private land you know i had a buddy ask me to come down and hunt with him went down there and hunted didn't have trail cameras of him, you know, and this was, this was in Brown County, which is flat, you know, mostly cornfield, small patches of woods. And he came in on a doe and, uh, pretty much walked out of my life. And then I saw him and the doe come out in the field at about 70 yards. And for whatever reason, that doe came back to me and right on her tail was him and I, I ended up shooting him at like 34 yards. Wow. He was, he's, he's a big one. He's, he's the one I'm proud of. Yeah. I imagine. I know that there's those deer that those, it's the frame. Sometimes when you see that frame, like for me, like when I, you know, for me, if there's a buck that's over like 170 inches in that frame, you see a buck pick up his head or you see that picture and you're just like, Oh, booner. When you yeah. see that frame, yeah. it just kind of like <laughs> takes your breath away. There's like, yeah, there's no like definitely a difference between like that 150 inch was like, oh, that's an awesome buck. And then when you see one of those like next level bucks where you're just like, oh. Yeah. The crazy thing is when, when you shoot a buck like that, you know, that deer, I was thinking 160, 170 inch deer when I saw him. But when you get them on the ground, the big ones, they get bigger. The small right. ones, they get smaller. The big ones, I mean, they just get bigger. When when we picked up the head on that deer, I couldn't believe what I shot. Man, I, I, I'm to this point, I've only ever had the ones that I walk up on and they get smaller. So I'm hoping for one of the bigger <laughs> ones one of these days. <laughs> it's coming, Mark. Hang in there. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna keep on keeping on. Um, yeah, that's awesome, though. So, Speaking, kind of taking a, a step back there a second. 
what is, you know, going back to that initial conversation, what are you looking for every year? Uh, what is, do you have a goal? Is it a four-year-old? Is it a five-year-old? Uh, is it, you know, 140, 150, booner status or up? I wish I could say it was booner status or up, but it's not. <laughs> like, I, I want to shoot a five-year-old or older. That's my goal. You know, if, like this year, I, I honestly believe the deer that I shot is a four-year-old. Um, so I want to shoot a five-year-old. And I'd like to see somewhere around 150 inches. Now, next year, it'll be 150 inches or bigger. I mean, you know, it, it just that's just the way it is. This, this year, I hadn't shot a deer in three years, you know. So I'm okay with holding out and, and tag soup. I'm, I'm pretty familiar with the way it tastes. So I'm okay with that. But, you know, after sitting in a tree for three years, it was time for me to shoot something. So... Next year, it'll be a big one or nothing, and then then my standards start going down every year after. Right, gotcha. It's, it's so a- so next year when you say it's you know it's got to be a it's going to be a pig. Um, if w- would you ever shoot? Be, I mean, because it sounds to me like you have access to the same pieces of property year after year after year. Um, and, and I know me and Mark talked a little bit about this, but a 170 inch three year old comes through. Are you shooting that, or are you letting it set, letting him go to potentially get a crack at him the next year? Yeah, it depends on the property. I mean, if I know that I'm going to be hunting that property next year, and it's a sizable piece of ground. I mean, there's some properties that we hunt are, you know, 70, 80 acres. So it it depends on the size of the property. It depends on if, you know, I'll have access to that property next year. So there's a bunch of variables, I guess. Um, I would hate to shoot a 170-inch three-year-old. I can't say that I wouldn't because 170 is 170. But, you know, it just depends, I guess. Yeah. What about you, Dan? 170 is pretty big. I, I can't remember, Dan, what you would do, what you've told me. What would you you kidding me? I mean, 170 inches, even as a three-year-old, you know, I talk a lot about mature, you know, trying to shoot a mature buck. I have yet to see a 170 inch three-year-old in my life, but if a 170 incher came through, I don't know if I could focus on his body. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's, that's a big, big buck. What about you? Yeah. Yeah. I'd have to shoot him, even though it goes against everything we say. (laughs) Right. Um, Because, you know, I I don't know. For me, right. Part of the reason why I like to target mature bucks is because they're older, smarter, bigger bodied, et cetera. Like those are the toughest bucks to hunt. Right. Because a big part of it is a challenge. But another part of it is because those types of bucks are the most rare. You know, an old buck is the most rare. They're the fewest of those out there. But the same thing goes for a 170-inch buck or 180-inch buck, whether they're three or five, that's still incredibly, incredibly rare. Um, so there's something extra special about seeing an animal like that and having an encounter with an animal like that and then having the chance to kill one. Um, so, yeah, easy, you know, if it's a situation where you can control a property, blah, 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 and you know he'll make it another year. I understand why guys might want to do that. But for 99% of the hunters out there, that's a once-in-a-lifetime buck. Probably would be for me too. Um, so that's a pretty special, cool thing. So I'd be letting that arrow fly. 
Hey, Donnie, what about um, you? You've killed two hundred inchers, and you've killed uh, uh, one, you know, one fifty inchers. How many deer have you killed in between that two hundred and one fifty range? Mm, seven, eight, something like that. Okay. So not a ton, you know, but once I the the big one I killed in two thousand seven. It, it pretty much changed the way I hunted. You know, I killed a big one. So then I was stuck on shooting a five-year-old or bigger, you know. So just like Mark said, they're rare. You know, a five-year-old right. deer is rare. They're, they're hard to come by, and they're, and they're smart. You know, it's, it's not easy. Even if they score 130, if they're five years old, you know, they're, they're tough to kill. They're, they're smart critters, that's for sure. So... You know, once I killed a big one, then I was stuck on that, and I just wouldn't shoot anything small or young. So, you know, they're not out behind every tree, so I didn't kill that many. No. Gotcha. Well, that's uh, I wouldn't say that's not many. For most people, that, that's a whole lot of big deer. So um, so I'm still working to catch up with you, Donnie, that's for certain. Um, yeah, I've lost some deer, you know, so I think there's at least one other booner that it, – you know, I lost, I shot and didn't find, you know, how, like I probably lost three or four deer. They were 150 to 170 inches. So, I mean, I haven't had the best luck finding deer. I don't know if it's because I'm a poor shot or bad tracker or what it is, but, you know, I've lost some big ones. Yeah, that's that's the worst. That's very... Been there, done that. Yeah, wow. exactly. Yeah. I mean, you live and learn, though, you know. My yeah. daughter killed... She killed a nice buck this year. It's probably in the 140s, six-year-old. Um, and we started tracking it. She shot it with a muzzleloader. We tracked about 70 yards on good blood, you know, really good blood. But once I went 70 yards, I was just getting antsy about going after this deer. If it's laying there, you know, bedded up and shot in one lung, you know, I, I wasn't sure on the shot. I was pretty sure, but, you know, so we backed out. And I went back the next day, and it was I took ten more steps from where I stopped and looked to my right, and it was laying there. So, you know, the the deer that I've lost, and I've I've seen clients lose, and you know, I've been around a lot a lot more these days. So, anymore, I just back out. Like, I'm, I don't think I don't think I, you know this is going to sound crazy for me to say, but I don't think I'll lose any more deer that that I put a lethal shot on because. I'm not going to push them. Yeah. Like I have the patience to, to wait and go back the next day. It's almost always better to be safe than sorry. It is. I, I can't, I can't even say how much it is. Like they're going to bed down within a hundred to 200 yards. Yeah. If they're, if they're lethally shot, they're, they're going to bed down within a couple hundred yards. And when you back out and you go back in, you know, even the next day, you're probably going to find them within 200 yards. They'll bed down. So yeah. it just makes for a lot better next day than, you know, not find them at all. Yeah. I don't think I, I don't think I ever pointed this out um, in previous episodes, even to you, Dan. Um, but the buck I shot in Ohio this year, um, you know, when I shot it, when I looked at the footage, it looked like the shot was back, but I thought a liver shot. Um, so I figured, you know, a little, a very, a very small part of me was like, "Oh, give him like you know four or five hours, and he'll be dead." But you know, I played it safe. I decided to wait till the next morning. 
Well, I went back the next morning. So I shot him at, I don't know, it was probably 5.15 p.m. in the evening when I had shot him. I went back in there and probably it was, I can't remember exactly, but probably 7.30 or 8 o'clock in the morning the next morning when I finally got in there. And um, when I found him, he was probably 100, 150 yards away, laying down, and he was, I mean, he was dead. Um, but he had not been dead for long. Like, he was still warm. He was not rigid at all. Um, so I think if I had went any earlier, maybe even a couple hours earlier, that buck still would have could have ran off. I could have pushed that buck and maybe never would have found him. Um, yep. So, I mean, it was so important that I waited to let that buck go overnight. And, you know, I worry, you know, my I think everyone's worry is, you know, you worry about coyotes or some type of predator getting that meat and ruining that deer. And that is obviously, you obviously don't want that to happen. You want to have that meat. Um, but, you know, zero meat is a lot worse than 75% of the meat or 50% or whatever it might be. Um, so that was just another big reminder for me that even though I thought for sure that deer would be dead in, you know, eight hours or 10 hours, you know, it was over 12 hours and he was still, you know, just barely had, had ended. So that was a, that was another eye opener for me. Yeah. Deer can, deer can live a long time. One, one long liver, you know, they can live, you know, 12, 15 hours. You know, it, it can take a while. Yeah. I got a random question for you, Donnie. Uh, have you ever? <laughs> I feel like the, all of your questions are Dan. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I'm, a, I'm in a, my own world, but uh, Donnie, do you have you ever had a buck that maybe you were obsessed with, and you were at going after and going after and going after, but never were able to seal the deal, and he either just you know disappeared into time or he was harvested by another hunter hunter no i i just don't limit myself you know there's deer out there that are big deer but there's other big deer out there so i'm not going to limit myself to one deer i'm just just the way i am i i'm i'm more than likely one deer you're probably not going to kill him more than likely I mean, right. So, you know, I'll, I'll get after one deer, but you know, if I if I hunt a deer two or three times close to his bedroom, I'm going to go look for another deer because there's a good chance he's already he's already won the game. I mean, they're they're smart critters. You go in there, and every time you go in the woods, you leave scent, you know. And gosh, they they just pick up on that so so well, and they're they're gone, you know. They're, they're tough critters to kill. Yeah, that's probably smart. You're an, you're an equal opportunity killer. You don't get stuck on any. Yes, I any, am. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I unfortunately have made the mistake of becoming obsessed with a single buck, much to <laughs> my chagrin this year. And he's haunting me still, but uh, <laughs> that's how it goes. And like you, you know, said, if, it's tough. If I had a 230 inch deer or something like that, something that was crazy big, then you know that might be different. But I've never had that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a challenge, no doubt about that. Um, Absolutely. So speaking of my challenge is I'm still trying to kill this one specific buck I've been after all year. I've hunted him in the early season. I've hunted him through the October lull. I've hunted him through the rut. Now it's the late season. You know, we're getting into December. We're shifting to those late season tactics. I'm curious to hear, Donnie, for you, what what kind of shift does that bring for you when it comes to your strategy? 
I mean, I'm sure you've heard it before. Food, you know, you, they're they're going to come off those does and they're going to go to food. Um, I wouldn't hunt in the morning. I I wouldn't even. I'd sleep in the morning and I'd hunt food sources, and I would only hunt those food sources on the best days. I, I know we we run out of time, but I think you can mess up a place quicker by over hunting it than you can by, you know hunting a day here or a day there on the best days when those deer are probably going to be up moving. So I wouldn't hunt back in the woods. I'd hunt field edges, you know, maybe 30 yards back in the woods, 50 yards back in the woods. Um, but I wouldn't try and catch them in going to their beds. I'd just hunt food sources. What uh, is it? Uh, I'm sorry. Is it easier to hunt in uh, a state like Ohio that allows you to have feeders, you know, when that, you know, it, during that late season time period. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, anytime you can bait, I, I mean, I know a lot of people don't like baiting, but it is legal here. And geez, when it gets cold out, you can bait them in. I think it's probably the easiest time to, to shoot a big one. And the rut's fun, you know, cause they're running around, but when it gets cold, they got to eat. And, you know, states you can bait in, I mean, it's, I won't say it's a slam dunk, but they're going to come in to eat. Yeah, especially if you pair that with low pressure, if you stay out of there. Um, The trick, I guess, is how do you get in bait without putting pressure on deer, but I suppose you can do that with a vehicle or something like that where they're not, you know, associating that with human contact as much. Um, What about natural food? Just like I said before, Mark, was, you know, if you go in there, you're leaving food, you know, so it's almost a reward for those deer to smell your scent. A little bit of conditioning. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah le- and last year, last year there was a farm that was dumping corn on the ground and, you know, I'd pull in the barnyard to dump the corn hundred yards behind the barn and the does, by the time I got back to the stand, I'd drive down the road a quarter mile and walk back up, get in the stand. There was already doe eating the corn, and they'd watch me climb into my tree stand. And before I get my bow up, they were eating corn again. Wow. And they they knew what I was doing. You know, they they knew that Donnie was bringing food. <laughs> it's interesting Crazy. how quickly deer can become conditioned to things. Um, Absolutely. Whether it be conditioned to your scent as a negative indicator of danger, or as you know something bring something positive and then yeah. you sneak attack them with danger but um <laughs> yeah you know i mean i i think it's definitely doable as you know when you when you come in there and you, you leave scent if you're bringing food that they'll associate your scent with food you know that they absolutely will and the noise that you make when you bring it in and i mean i've been bear hunting and when they're dropping bait in the barrels they're banging on the barrel to let the bears know that they just brought food. Right. Well, it's interesting you talk about this because we've had two other people on the podcast in the past couple of years that do something kind of similar. Um, you know, Lee Lakoski, he's got a situation where he has properties that he controls, of course, and they're managed. Um, but he makes a point to go into all of his spots and check those cameras and check the feeders and stuff weekly or on some type of consistent basis so that the deer – again, become conditioned, and he does that all year round, before the season, during the season, after the season. He does it all the time, so it's just part of the natural routine for deer around there. Um, 
So that works in a situation like that where it's, you know, heavily managed big properties. But at the same time, then we talked to a guy here in Michigan, Tony Hansen, who hunts very pressured areas. So lots and lots of other hunters, and he's hunting a small property. Um, and he does something similar. He takes his four-wheeler in every week, or I can't remember what the cadence was, but again, he consistently always took his ATV in there and checked the cameras or put the stuff in front of the cameras or whatever it was he was doing. But again, he did the same thing, so they became conditioned to that ATV coming in, and they didn't mind him coming in to check the cameras to get the intel and stuff. So I think one thing, you know, we always obsess about pressure. You might, I guess, and the more I'm learning is you got to figure out how to differentiate your pressure or your apply some type of pressure but in a consistent enough basis that deer become associated used to it um, while knowing what kind of intrusion deer will tolerate what kind of intrusion deer will not tolerate i guess is maybe right. the big picture thing right absolutely i mean when you're when you're bringing something in you're leaving scent there but it's not the same scent as you sitting in a tree stand you know 40 yards away that's that's a negative pressure bringing in foods positive pressure i think yeah very true. Um, what about natural food sources or, you know, non-bait food sources? Do you key in on any different type of food source based on weather or factors? I know some guys, you know, hunt grain type food sources with certain types of weather and then hunt food plot stuff like brassicas and things on other types of, you know, temperatures. Do you pay attention to anything like that? No, but we can bait, you know. I mean, we, we definitely got some fields what seems like when you know it's warm deer are going to be in some green fields but when it gets cold out you throw some corn on the ground you know and they're coming so i guess like i said when it's warm you go to some green and when it's cold you know you go to your corn pile which sounds horrible but <laughs> you know it's, it's true i mean it's true well hey i mean like you said, not everybody hunts that way. Not everybody likes to hunt that way, but plenty of people do. And, and really, like you said, it's legal and it's a, it's one more tactic that you can try. Um, yeah. And, and the other good thing about it, Mark, is you can be really selective on, you know, what you're going to shoot. You know what that deer is. You, he's coming, he's coming to that corn. You've got a hundred pictures of him. You know that, 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 that deer's probably five or six years old you know probably what he scores. You can be really selective on what you're shooting over a corn pile as opposed to a deer runs out into a field where he's got a big rack. He's got a 150-inch rack, but his rack makes him look, his body makes his rack look even bigger. So you think you're shooting a 170-inch deer, but you're shooting a 150-inch three-year-old because his rack makes him look bigger. Right. So, you know, you can you can kind of be more selective on when you're baiting. Same goes with bear hunting. You know, you, you're not shooting sows, you're shooting boars. You can be more selective on what you're shooting. So I think there is some positive sides to baiting. You know, and a lot of people don't like it, but there are definitely some positive sides to it. Yeah. And when I'm hunting corn piles or, or feeders or stuff like that, you know, I don't necessarily hunt right over that. I would rather try to catch deer coming into those areas like a buck i think a buck is probably going to circle downwind 40 or 50 yards maybe even 75 yards to win that area before he comes in so i like to have my tree stands 50 60 70 yards away from wherever i'm baiting or 
a fear or anything like that. I'd rather be away from it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, now, what about a situation like that when you're hunting it in the late season in the evening? How do you, whether I guess whether it's a feeder or it's a field, either way, you're hunting a food source one way or the other, how do you get out of there in the evening without educating those deer? Because they're feeding there, either in the field or at the corn pile or whatever it is. What's your take on that? Okay, well, if we're hunting a property where I have uh, somebody that can come and pick me up, for instance, you know, we were, I don't mind to bump deer off a field with a truck or a four-wheeler in the evenings. I'd rather bump them off the field with that and then climb down as opposed to me getting out and walking out as a predator. Um, if I'm hunting back at the woods where somebody can't pick me up, I keep a coyote howler in my backpack, and if I need to get down, I'll blow that coyote howler and the deer scatter, and then I get down and walk out. Nice. Yeah, I, I, I should probably bring in a coyote howler instead of me just trying to make a bunch of barking and yipping noises in the tree like I do. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I sound like an idiot. Somebody's yeah, off his meds. really well. <laughs> yeah. It is funny because, um, like you said, it does work, and lots of times I've had, um, especially in Iowa, I don't know if you've seen this, Dan, but I've had lots of times success howling like that and spooking the deer and then getting all sorts of coyotes around me riled up and howling too. Um, makes for an interesting little engaging uh, talking <laughs> encounter with coyotes. Yeah, and a nice, interesting walk out. Yeah, that too. You, you don't think a coyote's going to do anything, but, you know, you never know. It's kind of it's always eerie to hear 15 coyotes howling within 100 yards of you. It's true. I remember one time um, I was hunting up at our northern Michigan property, and I was young. I was like 12 or 15 or something like that by myself. And, um, you know, it's just deep, dark, northern Michigan swamp. So it's just kind of scary already when you're 12 or 13 or whatever that was. And then I remember just sitting there, and it was like last light, and I'm just getting ready to go. And previous to this point, there hadn't been coyotes around that area, but now they just moved in. And this was like the first time I'd ever heard them howl because one just picked up howling. It sounded like right next to me to my left. And then another one, like it sounded like 50 yards farther to the west. And then another one, and then another one, and then another one. And before I knew it, it was like a full semicircle all the way from my left shoulder to my right shoulder and all the way in front of me, all of them going off. And it sounded like they were right there. And I about crapped my pants. <laughs> yep, so I, in there. Yeah, it can be a little eerie. So, yep. well, Dan, do you have any more random questions for Donnie here before we wrap things up? I don't think so. I'm not, I don't know. Just, just, uh, FYI for you, Mark, I'm not afraid of coyotes. <laughs> well, that's good to know. But just you, to let you know and all the listeners, but, but you are afraid to, to sit on stand all day. So yes, that is, that is a fear. So we, we have, we each have our thing. <laughs> um, well, Donnie, I, uh, I appreciate you joining us and sharing, sharing how you've been able to be successful, how you've done this. And something I enjoy and appreciate about your hunting style is that you, not only are you an equal opportunity killer of what you choose to shoot, but you are an equal opportunity hunter as far as how you hunt. I think it's pretty interesting that you're able to kill big mature bucks you know, in a baiting situation on private land. You're able to kill big mature bucks two miles back on public land in a totally different kind of way. And it seems like you've been able to do it in all kinds of different ways, which is pretty neat because, you know, there's a, a lot of different ways to skin the cat, 
you know, when it comes to hunting mature bucks. And I think sometimes, and maybe I'm even guilty of this too, some of us tend to say, well, there's one way to do it, or this is the way you're supposed to do it, or this is the right way to do it. Um, and really that's, that's a bunch of hogwash. There's a lot of different ways. Um, there's a lot of different, different styles. Um, and I think that's pretty cool. So uh, it's neat to see one person who kind of has done it in a lot of different ways like this, that shows, Hey, it's, it's all good. And there's a lot of ways to do it. So interesting yeah, stuff. Donnie. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I mean, the main thing I would say, any, any kind of way you're wanting to do it, just think about pressure, you know, whether it's private, public, whatever. I think pressure is the key. Yeah. Very true. That is one consistent thing across the board. So, Donnie, if anyone wanted to learn more about what you're doing with the guide service down in Ohio, if they want to come hunt with you guys someday, where should they go to get information about that? Uh, we have a Facebook page, Real McCoy Outdoors, and we have a uh, website. It's www.realmccoyoutdoors.com. Awesome. Well, we will make sure to link to all that stuff. And, uh, gosh, Donnie, this has been fun. Thank you so much for sharing your stories and experiences. You bet. Thank you. And that is it, folks. Episode number 130 is in the books. I hope you enjoyed this one. But before we close things up, we do need to thank our partners who helped make this podcast possible. So big thank you to Sitka Gear, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Yeti Coolers, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Maven Optics, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And as well as thanking them, I do want to thank all of you listeners and readers and viewers as well, because many of you have reached out to some of these companies and said, hey, thank you so much for supporting the Wired to Hunt podcast. And that is awesome. That's a big help for us. And uh, it really makes a big difference. Helps show these companies that, you know, what we're doing is making an impact. And that allows us to continue doing this. So thank you. And thank you as well for just tuning into this show. I hope you're getting excited for some late season hunting. And I hope you'll stay Wired to Hunt. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.